God bless guys and welcome once again to our research podcast. In this episode, we continue our study on regeneration for our foundation series. And with this episode, we continue on our look of what scripture refers to as being born again. In fact, this is our last conclusive uh, thoughts on regeneration and the term regeneration itself in the original greek is made up of two different words one being paling which means again and the other one being genesis which means origin or beginning or source original source so when we think upon you know genesis or we can think of the the words such as genealogy where you can essentially trace one's lineage back to one's roots so regeneration is really a rebirth a new beginning in which our identity no longer stems from our original parents adam and eve and therefore the consequences of therefore no longer is applied to us we start afresh and our source or origin is now connected not with Adam, but with Christ, who gives us a new nature through the power of God, which is made possible through the work of his son Jesus by becoming our new representative of a new humanity. And just as through Adam and his fall set the rest of humanity into sin through Christ's obedience, we are received um, Oh, sorry, we receive his righteousness, bringing us back to that right standing before God. God wills, Christ does the work and the Holy Spirit applies that work to us. So it's a complete and utter work of God in our lives. That's, that's the Trinity, now, you know, Father, Son and Holy Spirit taking part in our salvation. And last week's podcast, we looked at the example of Abraham, if you recall, and how the significance of his name change uh, indicated not only a, 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 a change in his name, but also it referred to a change in his nature. As we compared with other mentions in scripture, what it meant when God would change one's name. You know, it was important to note that the name change of Abraham came prior to his bold confession of faith when he offered up his son, Isaac. Righteousness was indeed imputed to Abraham as it was declared on that day. And we don't dispute that. We do, however, point out that he was changed before not after his expression of faith. And that really was what we saw in all of the Old Testament passages in part one, how Israel would require a change of nature before they could express any form of faith, even though they already had the scriptures before them. And we then moved on to consider some of the ways that the apostles described for us the characteristics of regeneration. It was compared to that of a seed, if you recall. And we observed that just as a seed, uh, it is to something that grows, it develops, it matures, it changes. You know, once it is planted, its purpose is to bring forth change or a new nature, if you will. We saw that it was a seed that was imperishable to which we considered its eternal nature as well. And thus, we concluded that it was something that we could never lose or give back because it's, it's an eternal gift. We also reflected upon the need of our regeneration. You know, the fact that God had to change us tells us of our utter incapability 
to do it ourselves or even want to do it for that matter. For as we saw in Titus, Paul described our nature as being slaves. And we reflected upon the fact that we were willful slaves to our passions and pleasures. That the word for slave should not give us the impression that it was something done to us and and we didn't want to partake in it. Quite the opposite. It was very much so our own choosing. We delighted in this. And just as a side note as to this truth, just to kind of nail this in and drive this home, I want you to consider with me for a moment Romans 6, in which Paul describes or compares our slavery to righteousness with our slavery to sin. And we won't read it, but if you ever get the chance, read that. Uh, that portion in, in Romans 6 when, when he refers to slavery to sin. Because he says that what we were doing was presenting ourselves to sin. And the word therefore present is parasitome. And in its basic translation, it means to stand beside and willfully hand over. So we willfully submitted our bodies over to sin. And by comparison, the interesting thing is the way that Paul describes the action of God taking us out from slavery to sin and into the service of righteousness, the word he uses to describe God's action in the Greek is paradidomai. And it is translated in the ESV as committed, as in when you commit someone into an asylum or when you throw someone in jail. So the action is far more aggressive you know, when, when you uh, consider what God's action is when He redeems us. It's a more aggressive word implying that there is this reluctancy on our part, at least initially. Kind of like a drug addict being thrown into rehab center. He may fight you on the way there, but on the way out, he's grateful because he's changed. Or when you throw in, in someone... A, into one like a, a mental patient into a ward the idea is to help them when they come back out they're a changed person so the idea is that when when it comes to our sin we willfully submit ourselves over and it had to take god to violently pick us up and drag us out of that place and place us into righteousness the last thing that we considered in terms of in terms of our last episode was the term born again and how it, it compares our first natural birth with that of our second or rebirth something that we tend to oversee is just as in our first birth it was not our own doing but of God's will for us to exist in other words you did not consult God or, or requested God to be born. It was out of your hands. You were born because God willed you to be. So too, when we can conclude that our regeneration is not of our own will, but of God. And that is clearly stated by John, that it is of God's will and not of man's will that we be born again. Which brings us to the way we ended it. And um, 
with that same question that I want to begin this episode with, and that is that if indeed our regeneration comes only after our confession of faith, then we must ask the question to those who hold that view, what led us, and by us I'm referring to Christians, what led us to confess Jesus as Lord? What was it? What separates us from the rest of humanity that we would be able to see Jesus as he is revealed in scripture? Because if we can answer that question, then evangelism would become so much easier and the potential of saving the whole world becomes a a reality to us. We will be able to tell them how to have faith in Jesus and everyone would be saved. It would be super easy because the truth of the matter is that those who hold to the view that it it is indeed dependent upon our faith for, for us to be changed, we press on and ask what was the driving force behind their faith? Is faith exercised by our will? Was it exercised by our intelligence, our desire? Have you ever considered this question yourself? What makes one have faith and not the other? What is that driving force that pushes one into faith? Well, one might say, well, it's his desire. But Paul says, we are slaves to our corrupted desires. Another one might say, yeah, it's, it's our will. But scripture says that it was not the will of man, but of God that you would be born again. Others may again say that, you know, if it's not the will, they might say it's our intelligence or our knowledge. We need more information about God in order to be convinced. But we saw in Ezekiel that Israel had the law and the knowledge of God, and yet they were as dead as dry bones. So how are we to view faith then? That's the essential question that we also have to address here. How do we view faith if if regeneration precedes our faith? The proper way to view our faith is that it is not exercised by our own nature, our heart or our mind or whatever else you want to suggest, but purely it has to be understood as a gift of God given to man. When God comes and he gives us the gift of salvation it does not come as a gift that we ourselves must open with our own strength and and take it or snatch or whatever it is no it's it's essentially what faith is 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 that open hand ready to receive it it doesn't do anything we don't take it. it it is placed in our hands you know we always get that analogy or example where we that he's extending his hand and all you're gonna do is reach and grab the gift no Faith is just opening up your hand and saying, I I need this. And then you receive it. You don't take anything. It's, It's a gift that we receive. His salvation comes with the whole package. You know, a new nature that gives us a heart that believes in God so that we may place our faith in God. It's just coming to that place, acknowledging that, man, I can't do this on my own. I, 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 I'm a wretched sinner. It's so important that we begin to see that faith itself is a gift of God. 
in which it is the agent that brings forth our inheritance as a child. But first must come the new nature that allows us to have an active faith in God. So turn with me back to the portion we began this doctrine with before we finish up with, with what Christ says about regeneration. Turn with me to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We're going to be looking at verses 8 and 9. So Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. And consider the words of Paul and how he expresses the way we ought to properly view our faith, the right perspective. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It is important to note here that our salvation is packaged together here into two separate parts, if you will. First, that the motive for our salvation is God's grace. That's, that's the, the reason why. And the second is that that grace is received through our faith. But both collectively are considered as or fall under the title of gift. Because if we are to consider faith separate to grace and independent to the gift of salvation, the gift of faith will be considered a work and we are not saved by works, but by grace. So the reason why God saves us in this manner is because there can only be one who may receive glory from our salvation, and that is God himself. At any point that we see faith as anything other than a gift of God, it becomes a thing of works, and thus we rob God of his glory and become boastful. It is as ridiculous as saying that I receive a gift from someone, but I say that I have this gift purely because I took it from him. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's as silly as saying that. The only reason why I'm, I'm saved is because I took that gift of salvation. You would not have the gift to begin with, lest he willingly gave it to you. Do you see the difference? So it, it, it cannot be that regeneration comes only after our confession of faith, but rather our faith grows out from a new nature that God has given us as a gift. As a final remark on, on this, let us see if Christ says, or what Christ says about our regeneration. Does he agree with this view? For that, let us turn to John who deals with the, the Christ's earthly ministry in a very unique way by presenting us to Christ as the Logos, the Word of God that existed prior to His incarnation with the purpose of bringing salvation to those who were His. And John begins his gospel by firstly establishing that it is Christ who has come with a mission to raise up a new family for God. He was entrusted with this to grant sonship to those God had elected through his work at the cross. So John says that this new adoption would come through a new birth, not of flesh, and blood, but from the will of God, which we've made mention already in, in John 1 verses 12 and 13. John 
says that this new adoption would come through a new birth, not of flesh and blood, but of the will of God, as we saw in John chapter 1, verse 12 to 13. And so in chapter 3, we see Jesus explain how this adoption will come about. And he's explaining this to a prominent leader of his day. And so we are introduced to this very important encounter that Jesus had with one of the Sanhedrin members. Now, the Sanhedrin was essentially a council made up of various teachers of the law from different schools of thoughts like the Pharisees and Sadducees. Anyways, in this encounter, we meet a teacher of the law by the name of Nicodemus who has questions for this real teacher of God's word, Jesus. And let's open up our Bibles to John 3 and we'll read this portion here. Um, we'll read verses 1 to 8. I just want to highlight for you a few verses from this portion, but just to get a feel of what's going on, we'll read these eight verses. And the Word of God says this, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And we'll leave it there. Now, we won't have time to expound all that we have or all that we find here in this portion. So we'll have to draw out what is most pressing to us in relation to what what he said about regeneration. But before we get to what Jesus says about regeneration, let's briefly reflect upon who Nicodemus is. Let's not for a moment just pass him by without regarding who he is and and the reason why God in his sovereignty places Nicodemus as the one to hold this con conversation with it's important that we acknowledge who this man is because he is a prominent role in society he is a teacher of the law you know um, and so it's important that we understand this you know in our study of the nature of man if you recall we reflected upon the nature of Israel depicted to us in the portion such as Ezekiel as being in a state of deadness which by the way Jesus makes reference to and we'll look at very shortly but despite the fact that they indeed had the law of God, they still were in a state of deadness. And many stand before Christ just like Nicodemus who believe they are good because they may know about living morally or keeping the law of God. 
but stand just as Israel in Ezekiel or Nicodemus before Jesus, that the fundamental problem is our nature and it requires a change. It is to this that Christ addresses with Nicodemus the necessity of being made a new creation a new creature, much like being born again, as how he describes it to Nicodemus and to us today. To which I want to draw your attention to verse 3, in, in which we find Jesus say to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Gosh, how I want to spend the rest of my time on just that word, unless. For it is so important for us to grasp what that word is implying here. For it stands as a, a conditional particle. That means that our ability to see the kingdom of God depends upon uh, this work of being born again or born from above, as some trans translations put it. So it is Christ who insists so clearly to this teacher of the law that he spent most of his whole life, if not all of his life, spent spending it in studying the word of God, you know, his so-called keeping of the law of God. And, and yet that was not the determining factor that would grant him access to the kingdom of God. The only thing that would grant him entry to this kingdom of God is for him to be born again. Now, as we noticed in the portion, this puzzled Nicodemus. For how can a man be born again, he protested. And how does Jesus respond to him? Equally puzzled by essentially saying, wait, hold on. You call yourself a teacher of God? You, you teach God's word and you can't figure out that you need to be changed? And so in an attempt to assist him along the way, he changes the phrase and puts it in a more familiar way, saying to him, truly, truly, I say to you, and in the Greek, that word there for you is plural, implying that this isn't just for Nicodemus, just in case you want to say, or some may want to argue that this was just purely uh, a singular occurrence. No, it's a Nicodemus, you and anyone who is in the same state of Nicodemus, this is for you. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, the change of phrase with the added born of water and spirit was added purposefully to draw this teacher of the law back to scripture. In particularly, what he's trying to kind of nudge him into, into considering or remembering is Ezekiel 36 verse 25 to 27, in which we'll read it just to get a, a taste for it. Ezekiel 36 verse 25 to 27 says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes 
and be careful to obey my rules. So he's pointing him to this in which the prophet says that God will clean his people with the sprinkling of water from all uncleanness and remove the heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. And as we've already stated when we looked at Ezekiel, the prophet puts uh, to this as being the work of God and God alone. This isn't a, a, a man thing, like we can't do this. I mean, consider this man even for a moment because it has to be God's work that does this because when we reflect upon who Nicodemus is, we, we think upon how the fact that for all of his life he has attempted to reach out for God in his own strength, even thinking that he had already done so but was so far from him. This man was not just a very religious man, but the fact that he was a teacher of the law should indicate to you that he was also a very highly intelligent man. And even beyond that, dare I say that he shows a desire or interest in what Jesus had to say, that he searches him out in the middle of the night. We find all those things that we might say, can be expressed as the human will or desire. We see human intelligence or his mental capacity. And we see also that he was a man educated in the things of God. And yet he still was not even able to even see the kingdom of God as Jesus says to him. Unless he was born again. Men like Nicodemus and Paul, who was once known as Saul, are presented to us as kind of like the pinnacle or the best that the world has to offer in terms of you know, human capacity and their, their ability to keep the law. You know, Paul would say, in terms of keeping the law, I'm a Pharisee, I'm a, I'm a law keeper, I'm blameless, he would even say. All right, something that Nicodemus would say also that he's a he's a teacher of the law. So he, these guys are presented to us as the best that the world has to offer, and yet between these two titans, according to man's standard, all right, these guys are highly educated, highly religious, highly everything. They they were very well aware of scripture. They had drive. They had wheels of iron right they were strong in, in whatever it is that they wanted to do they were determined and that they, they would do it these two titans well, only one of these was saved and the other one wasn't and it wasn't due to their own merits for both had the same qualification or they were both highly intelligent they were both very strong-willed. They were both well-versed in the scriptures. All these qualities that we may say are the driving force of one's faith. These guys possessed that. They had that in them. And yet, only one was saved. And that was purely because of God's grace to regenerate him and gift him with faith to believe. It is not in our ability to do so, to come and, and, and just snatch and, and, and exercise faith from, I have no idea what, what you know, faculty of the human being do we, do we access that. 
but purely through the work of God's regenerative power. Lastly, we may also reflect upon the comparison that Jesus makes between the wind and with those who have been born again. In verse 8, Jesus says that just as the wind remains invisible to the naked eye, yet we are still able to see the effect it has on everything. In the same way, he says, we may too be able to maybe not see a, a person being born again physically, like there's no physical alterations to the person. But we can see that just like the wind, it has a spiritual effect in that person, that person that has been regenerated. And this obviously speaks of having a new heart as described to us in Ezekiel that leads us to this new life, new perspective that allows us to do what we once could not do, where we could not express our faith in the scriptures that we may have stared at and memorized for all of our lives. But until we have a new heart and have been cleansed by the water and the spirit, we remain as dull as Nicodemus is in this encounter. I would also like to draw your attention to one final observation before we conclude. And that is to the comparison of the wind with the work of regeneration. And that is just in particular, just how the wind blows where it wishes, it says in the ESV. And we can conclude that this work done is not determined by those who are regenerated, but rather by the one who does the work. Just like how the wind blows where it wishes. It is only the one who does this work that determines where it's going to do this work, where it's going to have this effect. Not by, if we're comparing uh, the wind to the tree and how the wind blows on a tree and it is affected by it. You know, it is not determined by the tree. It is purely determined by the wind in that same way the spirit is the one that determines, you know, where it's going to have or hold this effect over a person. It is not determined by man. That word there for wishes is translated in the NASB as will. And it is probably better translated in that way. For it does connect us back with John's purpose found in John 1.12 where we've studied. In which John tells us that it is not the will of man but the will of God that we are born again or made children of God. The word wishes in the Greek is telo. And when John tells us that we are born again, not of man's will, but God's will, the word there used is telema, which is derived from the word telo. Telema, telo. And so as we have seen, we are born again first before we can begin to express any form of faith. That regeneration must precede faith. We can make the connections when we study the word of God more thoroughly. We begin to see this, this reality. 
as scripture is presenting to us. And so Jesus too teaches the very same thing that we've been expressing here, that there must be a change in nature because without which you won't even get to see, let alone enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus points to us to that very same text that depict for us our need of regeneration before we can do any act of faith. And maybe as we wrap things up, maybe you have been a Christian all your life and have held on to a prayer that you once prayed as your declaration of faith before a crowd. And maybe you have been intellectually convinced of what the Bible says or enjoy some form of you know, a piety that, that comes with it. But all those are not indicators that you are a Christian. It is solely dependent upon whether or not you have been regenerated. You have been born again. That your nature has been changed. So the question is, has God given you this new nature, a new heart? Because without which you will never even see the kingdom of God. And the last thing you will hear from our Lord's lips will be, Depart from me, evildoer. No. Salvation is of the Lord and the Lord alone. And He must change you. With this, we conclude our look on regeneration and, and I hope that we've accomplished our goal in trying to answer that question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? What does scripture say about regeneration and faith? Which, one's, which one comes first? Our faith or regeneration? I think we have set before us a, a very solid foundation for you to work with to see that it is truly the work of regeneration that must precede must come before a proper and genuine declaration of faith just as we saw in abraham so with that we conclude this three-part uh, talk on regeneration and as always we pray that you have been blessed and that god be glorified Till next time, God bless.